Imagine with me for a moment. Close your eyes if you want to. Try to picture in your mind a sprinter. A sprinter is standing there in the dust, trying to get the last bit of tightness that he can out of his muscles in his legs, trying to stretch just a little bit. He looks over to his right. He looks to his left. He sees other sprinters doing the same thing. All of a sudden, they hear a sound over the intercom, somebody speaking. He tells the sprinters to get up to the line to make ready. So the sprinter stands up, begins to walk forward, dust gently rising up around his feet. There's a little white chalk line in the ground in front of him. Puts his toe right up on the edge of this line as close as he can get to it. Digs his heels in and gets ready for the gun to sound. The act that this sprinter's just done is what we call towing the line. Now I'm sure everybody's probably heard that phrase at some point in their life. I, I did a little research trying to get ready for the sermon, and there's a lot of people who guess where that phrase came from, but it seems like nobody really knows for sure what coined the phrase towing the line. But basically what it represents is you have somebody or something that is trying to get as close as possible to a boundary without going past the boundary. And most of the time the reason you don't want to go over it is because there, there could be some type of punishment, there could be some type of a consequence for it. Uh, for a sprinter in particular, if they step over the line at least once it's a false start, most of the time if you do it a second time you're disqualified, they're out of the race. And so they walk up and get as close as possible to this line without going over Obviously, I want to apply things to a spiritual realm here and, and to our lives as Christians, and so we think, okay, we're towing the line. That's a good thing, isn't it? That means we're following the rules. That means we're doing what was set out for us to do. But I want to look at things from a little bit of a different perspective this evening. In particular, I want us to look at an individual in the Bible that, in my opinion, reading the story about his life, he tried to tow the line, and I want to see what happened to him because of it. Everybody be turning over to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13, we'll get to it in just a moment. And we're introduced to Lot at the end of chapter 11. And we're going to go through a little bit of a brief history of him. I think everybody's aware of, of the basics of Lot's life, but some of the details we're going to point out, they're going to become important uh, later on in the lesson. At the end of chapter 11, we're told that, that Terah, he left Ur of the Chaldeans, and he was headed towards the land of Canaan. And he took with him his son Abram, his grandson Lot, and a lot of other family and possessions and other things. And they started this journey, leaving Ur, going down to Canaan. Well, when they reach Haran, Terah dies. God then instructs Abram that he's, he's to continue this journey. So Abram keeps on going, and he takes Lot with him. And I think everybody understands the relationship between Abram and Lot. It's an uncle-nephew relationship. Lot is the son of Abram's brother. And so this is a family. They're traveling together, and they actually get down and they reach Canaan. We find out then in chapter 12, there's a severe famine that hits in Canaan. And so because of that, Abram has to travel up to Egypt just to survive, just to get some food. He takes a lot with them, takes some other things. They stay for a little while, and I think everybody knows the story. They have to more or less quickly leave Egypt and head back to Canaan because of an incident between Abram and Pharaoh where Abram had claimed that Sarai was his sister and about got him in a lot of trouble. And pretty much Pharaoh told him to get out. So they head back down to Canaan, and they go back to the exact same place where they had just left from. So I want us to start reading in verse 13. That's the background of where we're at. Or excuse me, chapter 13, verse 1. 
It says, Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, meaning he went back to where he was originally before he went to Egypt, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which had been made there at first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. So we're told a little bit more about Abram and Lot here, about how wealthy that they are, how much God has blessed them with physical possessions in their life. And basically, they've, they've come to a situation now to where they have got so big, they have grown so much, they can't live together anymore. And it, it basically boils down to a, a thing of resources. There's literally not enough resources around them to support the herds that both of them had. There's, maybe there's not enough water, there's not enough grass for them to eat, whatever it be. And they start having this issue between the shepherds, the herdsmen, the men out watching the, the livestock for them. And so they're to a point now where a decision has to be made. Something has to happen. They can't keep living like this or both families are going to start suffering greatly from it. And so Abram presents Lot with a question. That's where we're going to start reading it again. Let's go back to verse 8. And this is what Brother Eddie read for us just a moment ago. It says, So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I'll go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. We now see Lot has made the notorious decision that basically he is infamous for. When they have to separate and he leaves Abram, he's made this decision now. He's going to go this direction and Abram's going to go this direction. That decision changed the course of so much stuff that went on throughout the Old Testament. But one thing that I want to point out here, and, and I've been guilty of this in the past, I guess, is thinking of how, how evil Lot was for wanting to go this direction. Other than maybe being a little bit selfish for wanting to choose what was the best-looking stuff, we have no indication Lot did anything wrong in this decision. Abram asked him to go one way, and so he chose a direction. And he just took what was the best stuff instead of trying to come to a compromise and them both getting some of the best. And so he goes and he starts heading toward the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now it points out here in verse 10, it said that the, the plains of Jordan, they were well watered. Everything looked great for, for feeding his livestock, what he was really needing. But that was before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. And then it says down in verse 13 that the men of Sodom were ex exceedingly wicked. They were horrible, evil people. Keep in mind, too, we have no indication Lot knew this. He was just choosing a direction that looked good for feeding his cattle, for taking care of his livestock. It never said that he wanted to go and live in Sodom. 
Keep that in mind as we go through the rest of this. And we're not going to read in chapter 14, but just to summarize it real quick, basically in chapter 14 what we have happen is we have a war that happened. You have five kings versus four kings, and they're all kings from right in that same general area where Abram and Lot are at. The king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah are both involved in this war. They're on the same side. They get overthrown. Because of that, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are, are plundered. The pe people on the other side, they run through, they ransack the city, they take Lot and his family and all his possessions captive. Abram catches wind of this. Somebody gets it back to him. Abram gathers up his men. He goes and he's a, he attacks these other kings. Basically, he saves he saves Lot and his family. He overthrows these other kings for him. Not necessarily that Abram was going to save Sodom and Gomorrah. He was going to save Lot. But because he did that, Lot got everything back that he had. The king of Sodom come and personally thanks Abram for it. As I got reading through that and studying, the first question that popped into my mind at this point is, should this have been a clue to Lot? Should Lot have recognized something at this point that says, whoa, maybe I've, I've done something wrong here. I've gone a direction and associated myself in a region to where obviously the Lord is not with these people. He allowed them to be overthrown. But then you have the flip side over here. Abram, apparently the Lord's with him. Him and his men came and overthrew five other kings. Should this have been a clue to him at this point that maybe I need to rethink some of the direction I've gone in my life? Possibly. We skip over to chapter 18 then. And go ahead and be turning. We're actually going to start reading again in chapter 19. But in chapter 18, we have three men that have come, in, that have come to visit Abraham. Abraham's name has changed at this point from Abram to Abraham. During this visit, God tells Abraham that of his plans to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So Abraham now is aware of the situation and he's also aware of the danger that Lot and his family are in. And it says in verse 20 that he's doing this because they are exceedingly wicked. Their, their sin is very grave. Put yourself in Abraham's shoes right now. What would you do? What would you think? And so he starts this negotiation with God that we're all familiar with. He starts out basically saying, God, if you could find at least 50 people in this city, are you really going to destroy it? 50 righteous people. God says, no, no, I won't do it. So then he goes to 45, 40, 35, keeps on going the negotiation and gets it down to where God says, look, if I find 10 righteous people in this city, I won't destroy it. I'll let it be. I'm sure Abram is doing this with Lot and his family in mind, hoping he can save Lot's life yet again. Lot is an individual, and I really think these next few verses when we get reading is going to tell a lot about Lot's life and the consequences of the decisions that he made. But I hope to show that he is someone that I like to say he tried to toe the line. He tried to get as close as possible to an area that was sinful, to an area that was wicked. He tried to get that far and not go over the line. And I think some of the verses we're going to look at that will show that. Um, just for a little bit of, of geographical background here, when Lot, left Sod, when, he, when Lot left Abram, when they split ways, it says that they were between Bethel and Ai. The, the region that that's in compared to the area that archaeologists believe that Sodom and Gomorrah was actually at, nobody really knows, but archaeologists have a good idea of where they think it was. That distance is roughly 65 to 70 miles apart. 
And so Lot and his family traveled about roughly 70 miles to get down to that area. Just for a little reference, from this building right here to Nashville International Airport is 70.9 miles. That's how far Lot had to travel. So we're in this situation, and Lot and Abram are getting ready to part ways. Sure, I'm sure he probably knew Sodom and Gomorrah were that direction. I'm probably, they probably knew the surrounding cities that were around them. But when they look out, he probably couldn't see Sodom. He probably couldn't even see the city from where they're at. They, yeah, they may have been on a high mountain. I don't know. But remember, what he saw between him and Sodom were the nice plains. That's what lured him in. That's the thing that was pleasurable that he saw that he wanted, and he went after it. You know, we're told in Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 24, it says, By faith Moses, when he became of age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Those passing pleasures of sin, that, that green grass, that well-watered plains of Jordan that Lot saw, that's what sucks people into sin. Here's where I want us to begin reading in Genesis chapter 19. We'll start at verse 1. It says, Now the two angels, now these two angels of the three individuals that came to visit Abram to start with, two of them were these angels. They have now gone down to Sodom to more or less spy out the city to see if it really was in the shape God said it was in, and I'm sure to see if they could find these ten righteous people. God was going to hold up his end of the bargain. So verse 1, it says, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we'll spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly. So they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So we have gone from an area where Lot, he just pitched his tents toward Sodom, as far as Sodom, to where you're now in a situation where Lot is sitting in the gate of Sodom. What does that mean? What does it mean that Lot is sitting in the gate of Sodom? Notice it doesn't say he's sitting at the gate. It says he's sitting in the gate. There's a big difference in that. From the research I can find, most cities at that time frame, the, the city gate was more like a town hall. That was where the people who had political, political positions, that they were important people in the city, they met there, they kind of watched people coming and going, they would um, kind of oversee um, quarrels, bickerings that were brought to them, and they were more or less judged between the people. Um, they would... Um, coerce with one another, trying to figure out how they want to do things within the city. It was, it was where the important people in the city stayed. Then again, at nighttime, you had more or less what was known as the night watchmen. Their job was to make sure that there were no um, enemies that would get into the gate, that spies wouldn't work their way in. Um, they were also there to welcome visitors. And if it was somebody who that was legitimately at the city for a reason, they were there to kind of explain the rules of the city to them and make sure they could find lodging until the next day where they can start doing the business of why they came. Which one of those was Lot doing? I've read some sources that say Lot was pretty much a magistrate in the city of Sodom, that he, he had put himself up to a political position of what we would know as a mayor. Reading this, I think it may have been he was more a night watchman type position because he was welcoming visitors coming in, trying to help them find somewhere to lodge for the night. And it wasn't uncommon for the night watchmen to actually 
invite visitors into their own personal house, which is what Lot has done here. But either way, we see somebody who started out with Abram trying to find somewhere for his livestock to be taken care of has now somehow slowly gone into a position where he has some authority within the city of Sodom. He's no longer just a man on the outside of the city that is trying to take care of his family. He now is entwined in the inner workings of what's going on within Sodom. How did he get there? How did he get to that point? The Bible doesn't really tell us. We're not sure. Notice, too, though, when he invited these visitors to come and stay at his house, their response was, no, no, it's okay. We'll stay in the open square. And his response back, it, it intrigues me. It's not, no, 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 I don't want you to do that. You're not going to have a pillow. You're not going to have a bed to sleep on. Your neck and back are going to hurt when you get up in the morning. It just You're not going to have a good night. You're not going to sleep good. That's not what he said. It said he strongly insisted that they come stay at his house. Him inviting people to his house would not have been uncommon. The urgency with which he invited them to his house would have been uncommon. Lot recognized the danger they would have been in by staying in the open square that night. So you can't claim that, that Lot was ignorant about, the wicked, ignorant about the wickedness that was going on in Sodom. He knew exactly the danger that was around him. He knew what the men of this city were doing. James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, it says, But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. So we've seen this transition in Lot's life. He had this desire out here. He had this beautiful plains of Jordan, well watered, a good area to take care of his family. He was drawn in by that. And then it starts giving birth to other things that he starts getting involved in in Sodom and he's sucked into the city. One last thing I want us to read in Genesis chapter 19. Jump over to verse 9. It says, And they, the they they're talking about, this is the, basically the mob that has come to Lot's house trying to get to these two visitors. And they said, Stand back. Then they said, This one, this one being Lot, this one came in to stay here and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. What Sodom has done to Lot is the same thing sin does to us in our life today. Lot had this nice pleasurable thing, something that was pleasurable to the eyes. It drew him in. Slowly a progression starts happening and he gets involved in the city. And I say slowly because there's a war that happened in this time frame. This wasn't an overnight deal. And then all of a sudden this city's ready to just crush him. It's turned their back on him and is ready to kill Lot. Same thing sin would do to us today. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, and I, this is where I say Lot knew exactly what he had got himself into. You can't claim that Lot was ignorant of what was going on around him. 2 Peter chapter 2, go down to verse 7. And it says, And delivered righteous Lot which means somehow Lot stayed a righteous man in all this that was going on. He hadn't turned from God. Lot was still a righteous man. and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day, seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. If he knew what was going on around him, why didn't he leave? Why did he stay in Sodom? Why did he allow his family 
to be around this wickedness and basically put their own lives in danger. If he knew this shouldn't have been happening, why, why didn't he just go away? Go back to Abram and talk to him and say, look, I can't do this anymore. We've got to figure out something else. You know, if, if we're presented in our personal lives with the vilest of sin, somebody comes up to try to tempt us with something, and it's just the awfulest thing you've ever seen, we can immediately recognize the danger in it. We can recognize the consequences sometimes physical, definitely spiritual consequences of what that act may cause, we turn it away without a problem. But what about the little stuff? What about the things that in our Christian life we seem to downplay? The sins that we seem to downplay? It's, just, it's little petty things. It's not going to hurt anybody, right? Are we more easily tempted by those types of things? Is it easier to justify in our minds doing something just for a little while or just doing it this one time, surely God's not going to hold it against me. I mean, I, I can ask forgiveness later. It's not going to harm anybody when I do this. Maybe we don't always see the immediate danger in, in certain types of sins. The most dangerous part about that, though, somewhere along the line, Lot had to have recognized the, the wickedness that was going on in Sodom. Even if he didn't know it when he first started that direction in the plains of Jordan, it says here in Second Peter, it just tore his heart out watching the wickedness going on around him. At some point, he had to have gone from that transition of thinking he was okay to thinking, okay, I'm in, I'm in a bad area now. He got up to this line. If we get up to this line and we try to start towing this line of sin, we start thinking we can flirt with sin, that we can involve ourselves with it a little bit, that we can be around us and it's not going to affect us. It's not going to affect the people that are around us. That's the danger in not recognizing the significance and the importance of these sins that as Christians we try to downplay at times. So how is it today that we toe the line? What are these sins that I'm talking about? Let's look at a couple. How about lying? What is a lie? The definition of a lie is any statement that is intentionally false. Sometimes we mistakenly say things that aren't true. We didn't realize they weren't. But it's an intentional false statement. Or it can be used in reference with a situation that involves deception. So maybe something we're doing, we're trying to put on a false pretense of what the way things really are. Seems like a pretty simple definition to me. It's just basically things that aren't true. We should be able to recognize lies. What happens with people that lie? The Bible's pretty clear. It tells us in Revelation 21, verse 8. It plainly says, All liars shall have their part in the lake of fire which burns with fire and brimstone. That is the second death. There's no qualifications around that. It said all liars will burn in the lake of fire. What does God think about lying? What is his, his thoughts about it? Proverbs chapter 6, starting in verse 16, it says, These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. Let's list them. A proud look, a lying tongue, heads that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, 
a false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among the brethren. Notice it says there's seven things that God just loathes. That he just hates these things. Two of the seven are lying. A lying tongue and a false witness who speaks lies. So there's no question from us as a Christian looking at the Bible thinking what lie is. We should be able to recognize it. It's very easy to, to catch. We know what the Bible says is going to happen to people who lie. We know what God thinks about it. So why do people have a problem with lying? You may say, Jonathan, we don't lie. We're Christians. We don't have problems with lying. Do we? You know, we've, we've been talking some in the past. I've mentioned a few times the World Video Bible School series, the one that Don Blackwell uh, narrates. We watched the one, The Truth About Christmas. He's got one called The Truth About Lying. In that, he references a study that says the average person lies 25 times a day. 25 times a day. How many other sins out there do you know of that somebody commits 25 times a day on average? Now, of course, that's an average. There's going to be some that do less, some that do drastically a lot more. Maybe we're the ones that bring the average down. You know, in 2002, there was another study done by the University of Massachusetts. In that, they said, during a 10-minute conversation, 60% of adults, remember, this is adults, not children, 60% of adults can't go 10 minutes in a conversation without telling a lie, a lie of some kind. But here's what really disturbed me. It said the adults that routinely lie to their parents Again, this is adults lying to their parents, not children lying to their parents. Adults that routinely lie to their parents, 86%. Adults that routinely lie to their spouses, 69%. That is huge. Just looking at that, I can't imagine there's another sin that is abused more than lying. Maybe that's one of the reasons God abhors this sin because of how prevalent that it really is. And again, you may be thinking, look, we're part, okay, 86% lie to their parents. We're part of the 14%. We're Christians. We don't do this. Have you ever been sitting at home at night around the dinner table? Phone rings. You don't want to get up and answer it. We're sitting here as a family eating dinner. But it could be an emergency. We don't know what it is. Somebody gets up. They run over and answer the phone. They say, hey, Dad, the phone's for you. Who is it? I don't know. Somebody who sounds like a telemarketer. Tell them I'm not here. Hmm. An intentionally false statement. That's the definition of a lie. We're driving a little fast through town. We're in a hurry to get somewhere. Maybe it's an emergency. We've got to get somewhere quick. Blue lights start behind us. I knew exactly how fast I was going. Officer walks up to my window and says, Mr. Medley, do you know how fast you were going? No, sir. I may have known exactly how fast I was going. That's a lie. And then the one is, this, this almost makes my hair stand up thinking about it. It's probably the most uncomfortable position you could be in. You're invited over to somebody's house to eat dinner. They cook you a dinner. You just, and I know some of you already know where I'm going. You just hated it. I mean, there's no way around it. It just, it was awful. I mean, you, got, you can't be rude. You got to eat it. So you eat the dinner. 
And of course, they ask you the question, how'd you like it? You can't say you hated it, or can you? So you say, it's great, I loved it. An intentionally false statement. That again is the definition of a lie. That's what God abhors. So think about it. Do we have problems with lying? I don't know each of you. I know myself personally, and that's about it. Do we have problems with lying? Do we ever try to get up as close as we can to that boundary? Do we try to be deceptive in the things that we do? Try to toe the line of sin without crossing that line. Let's look at another one. What about the way we dress? And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on this simply because Brother Randy talked about this last Sunday night. He talked about modesty a lot. And I was sitting there as he's going through the sermon. He's like, took one of my topics. That's all right. But there's one thing that I do want to point out in that, in, in modesty, one very specific thing. And it's something that I think Christians are beginning to struggle with more and more. Now, I think from a day-to-day -day standpoint, just going throughout town, obviously we're sitting here in the worship service, we go, to, we go to town. For the most part, I think Christians are fairly modest. Most people are. I mean, you get some people that just absolutely don't seem to follow any kind of rules of any kind. But for the most part, we're modest. What about when we go to the beach? What about when we go to the pool? It happens this time of the year, every single year. How does a Christian dress in those situations? Are we truly being modest people? If I was sitting at the beach, sitting there in a, in a lawn chair, sitting real low down to the sand, got my toes in the sand, wiggling around, elder of the church walks up. Would I feel it necessary at that point to grab a towel to cover myself up? Would I feel the need to put a shirt on? What if Jesus were to walk up? No, well, that's very hypothetical. Would I still feel comfortable in the clothing that I have on if somebody in that position walks up to me? Or would I feel the need at that point to try to cover up a little bit because I was a little bit inappropriate? And, and I've heard this a lot of times from people is, look, you're at the beach. It's almost like the rules are a little bit different there. Are they? Is it any different there? Is it possible that I can wear clothing at one place and it not be sinful, but if I were to go anywhere else, it would be a sin? I think that's the definition of situational ethics, which is a whole other sermon and conversation by itself. But can I be somewhere and do something and it not be sinful that if I turn around and wore that same thing to a restaurant here in Cookville, they wouldn't kick me out of the restaurant? They wouldn't dare let somebody in wearing something like that. Why, why do we allow ourselves to do that? In James chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If we allow the world to dictate what modesty is for us when we're at the beach, does that mean we're trying to be a friend of the world? And I may say, look... Look, what I've got on is so much more modest of swimwear than what so-and-so over here has on. We're comparing ourselves to the world. We're allowing the world at that point to, to dictate what modesty is for us. Instead of allowing our Christian life, instead of allowing this Bible here to dictate what modesty is for us. You know, there's a lot of other sins that we could go through. I mean, 
We just simply don't have time. What about the way we talk, our speech, the words we use? Gossip. That's a huge one. A lot of people like to talk about a lot of other people. And we don't seem to recognize sometimes that that is a sin. And we just kind of downplay it. Like, start a conversation. I probably shouldn't tell you this, but there's a good chance you're crossing that line at that point. You're no longer towing it. Spiritual laziness. We just will not get up and go do anything. At least not for the church, for God's kingdom. Is that a sin that we just kind of downplay? That we don't really recognize the importance of it? You know, I think sometimes because we don't recognize the gravity, the severity of some of these sins, we don't recognize the immediate danger that we've put ourselves in from a spiritual standpoint, we think we can start venturing closer to this line. We have this little chalk line of sin drawn in the ground. You cross that line, you're in the realm of sin. I want to see how close I can get. I'm not going to cross it. I'm just going to get a little bit close right here. The problem is, is once we start pushing the boundaries of it, we start getting up here and we start towing this line. I'm like, well, I can take another step. It's not going to hurt anything. It's just a little bit. I mean, I just, line's right there. I'm standing on the line. Then you start, well, maybe the line was a little bit further out. So you try to get a little closer to it. And then the line was a little bit further out. And you move a little further until eventually you're to a point where the line was way back here. We've now crossed that boundary. We're not even towing the line anymore. We've stepped and sometimes ran across it. And, and this is something that I've never understood. Well, I say never. I, within the last couple years, and I'm sure it's part of getting a little older, hopefully maturing a little bit, having children, they kind of change the way you look at life a little bit. I don't understand why we try to flirt with sin. Why do we toe the line? It, it's not that we, we can't say we don't know what sin is. We don't know where the line is at. Very plain. The Bible does not take a doctorate degree to read and understand. It's very plain to understand what the Bible says, especially about sin. We just looked at lying. We know what the consequences of lying are. We know exactly what God thinks about it. But I can probably think of situations in my head right now where I've said a lie over the last week or so. It just slips out sometimes. You don't even think about it until after the fact. But why, why do we get anywhere close to this line? We as Christians have no business being next to this line. We have a responsibility to be a mile away from it. Why do we try to flirt with this line? Are we allowing the world and society to tell us it's okay, it's not going to be a problem? How's God going to look when he looks down here and he sees us all lined up right next to it? We've got chalk on our shoes, we're so close to it. Get away from the line. Don't even try to come close to doing what the world tells us we should be doing. When Lot, when he pitched his tents towards Sodom, again, he saw that pleasurable thing. It kind of drew him in. He was concerned about his livestock and taking care of them. And at some point over that slow progression, he made his way into the inner workings of Sodom. Now, it does say, the Bible tells us in 2 Peter, that he stayed a righteous man. 
how you can be involved in a, a society like that. Well, I say how can you be involved in a society like that and stay righteous. Sometimes I can't imagine our society right now is much different. Why did he allow himself to keep getting closer to Sodom and keep getting closer to Sodom until it finally got to the point that that mob was ready to kill him? Just like sin would do to us today. And we're told in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, starting in verse 34, says, Whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but the son abides in the house forever. Again, why are we trying to toe this line? Why are we taking the chance of enslaving ourselves in something that's going to keep us out of heaven? We should stay as far away from this line as we can possibly get. Even if that means the world and the society looks down on us because we're not doing what they say we should be doing. We should be doing what God says that we should be doing in every situation. We need to let God know that we're dedicated to him. We need to make sure God knows and understands that we have skin in the game. We understand the consequences that's going to come eternally. Maybe you've been towing the line in your life. Maybe you even crossed that line. Make it right. Get away from the line. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 3 verse 13 and says, unless we all likewise repent, we'll all likewise perish. If you do not repent, you will perish. Repent means change. Get away from the line. Quit trying to toe the line. Ask for forgiveness. Allow this congregation to help you bear your burdens. Allow us to pray for you tonight. Or maybe you're not even towing the line. You're so far past the line. You've never even been a Christian. It's like there was never even a line to start with. The Bible tells us exactly what we need to do if we want to be a child of God's, if we want to live in heaven with him someday. It tells us that we are to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, believe that he is who he said he is. We just saw in Luke 13, 3, we have to change what we're doing in our life. Changing is not just feeling sorry for what you did. That's half of repentance. The other half is you have to physically stop doing what you were doing and go do something else. If you don't do that part of repentance, you haven't repented. We're then to confess before others that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Come into this contact with the saving blood of Jesus through immersion in water through baptism, and then continue living that life that we're told in scriptures that we're supposed to be living. Now, Brother Glenn has picked out a song for us for the invitation, Only a Step. Now, I've always told people a lot of times, leading singing, that the hardest, per, the hardest part of leading singing is singing the first two or three notes. Because most of the time when you sing the first two or three notes, you're kind of singing by yourself. At that point, then, everybody else kind of joins in. This song says only a step. The hardest part of making that commitment and coming down here, asking for forgiveness, deciding that you want to be baptized, is taking that first step or two. After that, it's easy. Once you've started moving, your body will keep you going. Only a step, folks. So if you have a need tonight to make things right or to put on Christ in baptism, we ask you to do so as you come and as we sing.